Hello and welcome to the Friday, November 5th, 2021 edition of On Iowa Politics. Have you ever read a story about bad news and come away thinking, hmm, that doesn't seem so bad? For example, I saw a warning from a campaign consultant that higher prices, paper shortages, and yes, supply chain disruptions may dampen the boom in direct political mail. Yes, campaigns, even if they can get paper, may not be able to afford to send us those mailers that we read to make informed choices. How else would we know, for example, who looks bad in grainy, out of focus, black and white photos? The impact could be hardest on down ballot races with smaller budgets. Some campaigns have been testing postcards and smaller mailers with handwritten script in in an attempt to stand out. But overall, fewer mailers falling out of our mailboxes seems like a, a good thing, right? Unless, unless the trade-off is more robocalls. Ooh. <laughs> well, no bad news here, just elections, elections, and elections. Hi, I'm James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette, and with me today are Tom Barton of the Quad City Times. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, James. Amy Rivers of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, James. Aaron Murphy, State House Bureau Chief for Lee Newspapers. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning. And Gazette Opinion Editor Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. You can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to On Iowa Politics wherever you find your podcast. First up, elections, part one. City and school board elections typically are low turnout affairs. They were again this past Tuesday, but all things are relative. So election officials are excited by higher than normal turnout at the polls. Statewide Secretary of State Paul Pate reported turnout was around 20%, up from just less than 17% two years ago, which was the first time for the combined city and school elections. We've talked about this before, about what was driving interest in these races, critical race theory, mask mandates, and social justice, as well as other issues. So what happened? Amy, uh, unlike many places around the country, Waterloo saw a strong turnout and welcome results, at least for progressives. What happened? Yeah. Well, yeah, you're right. Um, so I, Waterloo is is normally um, leaning to the left already. Um, I think Democratic ballots um, de- or registered Democratic voters um, outnumber Republicans a little more than two to one. Um, now, there are a very good chunk of independent voters as well. Um, so that's even in a down year, that's really going to favor progressives. But but really what you saw with this election um particularly with, you know, the local issue of uh, Cedar Valley Backs the Blue, which was this pack that formed based on um, the removal of the police logo that some thought looked like a KKK griffin that really polarized this race. Um, and, and basically Cedar Valley Backs the Blue's tack was to take that former griffin and just plast it all over mailers, billboards, whatever. Um, that strategy seems to have backfired and really, really turned out those progressives that may have been on the fence, may not really vote in a municipal election. Turnout this year was 32%, which is one of the highest we've seen, um, the highest since 2005. And that was when um, there was a municipal utility telecom on the ballot um, for a lot of cities around Iowa. So that was a big deal at that time. And clearly this is a big deal at this time. What it meant for Iowa or what it meant for Waterloo was they now have a 4-3 black majority on the city council. Now, keep in mind, Waterloo is like 16.7% black. So that's huge. They also ushered in their first openly gay uh, councilwoman in uh, Nia Wilder. Um, and they're very, very progressive. Um, this is at least 6 to 1, if, if not 7-0 uh, for most votes. Um, so it'll be really interesting 
um, for the next two years, sort of seeing what this council does with that, what Mayor Hart does with his um, fourth term and, and basically how they see that mandate playing out in Waterloo. Waterloo has this reputation as the worst city for blacks to live in. Does this do anything to help dispel that uh, reputation? By itself, no. Um, you know, representation matters hugely. I think that's really um, been the enthusiasm right now. Um, people are really excited to see that they're actually being represented at a level that can really do something about this. Um, that has to translate into policies that are meaningful. Um, we're talking um, housing, we're talking incarceration, um, and these are big issues that were brought up during the campaign. So it'll be really interesting to see um, where we go forward next with police reform, with housing reform, with incarceration rates, you know, helping a lot of these things. Um, and, and honestly, a lot more sort of progressive policies that they're wanting to do as well. Um, but a lot of these candidates are also um, focused on the city's growth, you know, and pointing to that as a way um, to prevent having to, you know, raise property taxes and things like that just by bringing the base up. So I think um, in the long run, it'll be really interesting to see they've, they've got two years to try to put this in and, and see what they can do. But something like that, that ship's not going to turn around overnight. It'll just be starting to put these policies in place. Mm-hmm. Aaron uh, Ankeny was another hot spot, especially for the school board races. Sounds like it was a clean sweep for the anti-mask uh, or um, parental rights crowd. <laughs> yeah, it depends on uh, uh, which side you're on, as to which term you use there. <clears throat> yeah, they and and one of the things they did, I, I think we talked about this last week, and I said, uh, first of all, it looked like a, a presidential year up here in Ankeny with all the yard signs. So clearly there was a lot of money raised and uh, resources put into these um, school board races, which you don't normally see um on one of the last days before the election um i even saw a temporary uh video board uh literally you know someone put pulled up a trailer and had this video board uh that had scrolling video text supporting um these candidates so uh so obviously um uh there was a lot of um attention and a lot of um resources put into this election um and and one of the things that that they did that i probably is safe to say it was smart and certainly seemed to work out is they basically ran as a group ticket. Um, everything you saw was um, Murphy, Barthol and, and Burke. You, you always saw the same thing. That video board had all three of them on there. Um, so, so it, it, I, I suppose it may have had the effect of the, when people went to the ballot box, they had all those three names in their mind as, as one group. And, um, uh, so yeah, so so it clearly was a message that um, um, more voters than not got behind. What what's interesting about it all now is so here we are in November fifth. Um, their term doesn't start for a few weeks yet. I don't know how fast the, the, the Ankeny School District right now does have a mask requirement. Um, they, they obviously have the exemptions that a lot of people are taking advantage of, but there is a mask requirement. So depending on how fast they want to move and assuming they want to repeal that requirement. Um, we obviously now have the news about the 5 11 crowd having a vaccine. We've got the news about the Pfizer treatment that's um, 90% effective in, in preventing serious illness and death. We're, we're, I mean, knock on wood here, we're, it sure feels like we're on the tail end of this thing. And in the matter of a month or two, this, this won't be an issue for schools, hopefully. So these folks that got elected largely on this one issue 
um, will not have this one issue on their plate for the next. So I, so I guess they're gonna. I don't, I don't know what they do for the rest of their term. Uh, but but the the wave that swept them in is now receding back out into the ocean. So it'll be interesting to see what what happens with these uh, uh, these new board members. I suppose if the current board wanted to, they could wait until right before the new board comes in and and remove the mask mandate so that they they couldn't even do the symbolic you know <laughs> vote that we removed the mask mandate yeah wouldn't that be great uh, plus, plus that leaves them they would then the new group wouldn't be able to do it the one thing that they yeah. campaigned on they wouldn't be able to come in and do it exactly oh, the, exactly the, the pot stirred yeah. me loves that idea <laughs> <laughs> Tom, in, in Davenport, the mayor was reelected, uh, but there will be three new council members. Was this a split decision on local government, or uh, were voters sort of split on rejecting the status quo? Um, well, so um, two of the three new council members were running in open seats um, where you didn't have an incumbent. Um, in one of the cases, a uh, council member resigned in April. Um, and so this was uh, an election to um, uh, for a, a, a permanent uh, replacement um, for that seat. Um, in another, you had a long-term incumbent who had represented the ward um, since 1998 um, and decided not to run for re-election, um, but didn't make that announcement until um, right after the filing deadline. And so a lot of people were expecting that he was probably going to run again. Um, you know, he didn't give any indications that he wasn't and, you know, nobody really wanted to go up against him. And so because of his late announcement decision not to run for that seat, he pretty much, um, you know, kind of cleared the field um, and only one person um, filed to, uh, to, to run and was unopposed. Um, and then um, in, in another situation, um, as Amy said, you know, while turnout was higher than normal, at least um, in Scott County, it was still a fairly low turnout affair. It was about 14 percent. Um, and so in one of the, the council races, um, it was a situation where you had uh, and I should mention in Davenport, it's only two year terms. Um, so you had an incumbent who won the last election cycle in 2019. Um, uh, new guy, fairly young guy, um, 29, uh, auditor at, uh, at John Deere. Um, and, you know, to be honest, he, um, and, and he admitted this, you know, he just, he didn't campaign. He didn't really get out, um, compared to, uh, to his opponent, to the challenger. You know, he talked about in local elections, it's how much can you get your name in front of people? And his challenger had an entire group of people out door knocking uh, for him, you know, they pounded the pavement, they covered a lot of doors and got his name out there. And that was the difference. Um, and he ended up winning by about, you know, 100 votes, you know, it's it's slim margins when you're talking about local elections on the mayoral front. Um, you had incumbent uh, uh, Mike Manson uh, win with uh, overwhelmingly with about 77% of the vote. Um, defeating um, community activist um, Athena Gilbraith. Um, in that in that situation, um, public safety um, it was a huge issue in this race. Um, Davenport, like a lot of um, uh, large cities um, across the state and across the nation, have seen an increase in gun violence. Um, 
And um, Gilbraith, you know, argued that um, that the um, the way to address um, public safety is to embrace calls for social change and racial racial justice in the wake of um, George Floyd's death, and that um, and that the city needs to um, uh, expand implicit bias training across across the board, and and that was really kind of her message was, you know, this all boils down to um, implicit bias training, which the city already does. Police officers receive implicit bias training. Um, and that message just didn't really resonate with voters who kind of saw her maybe as a, a, a kind of a one note candidate, whereas Matson was able to, um, to, to argue and show that um, he's been a collaborator with local state and federal government officials to attract uh, new public and private resources uh, to invest in crime prevention. Um, you know, he was able to get the governor to allocate state resources, um, investigative resources to help the Davenport Police Department, um, you know, tackle gun crime. Um, and so that's that's how things panned out in that race. Mm-hmm. And Todd, uh, partisanship has played a role in previous city council elections in Cedar Rapids, but was certainly amped up this year. Um, what can we tell from the, the results Tuesday? Well, there's going to be a runoff, uh, on November 30th, which is really exciting. I, I, I wish this campaign would never end. Uh, so <laughs> Tiffany O'Donnell was the top vote getter. She got about 42% of the votes, so not enough to, to win the mayoral race outright. Then we've had Amara Andrews on election night, uh, ahead of mayor Brad Hart by just 24 votes. And I think they've looked at some of the, uh, they've looked at the uh, provisional ballots now, and I, I, Amara's second place lead grew to like 40 votes, I think. So uh, so it looks like it's going to be Tiffany O'Donnell versus Amara Andrews, unless Brad Hart calls for a, a recount, which, you know, the auditor says with the, with the short time window between now and November 30th, it's going to be tough to do a recount and still do absentee ballots and all these things that you would normally do. So um, what'll be really interesting given those margins and given the fact that I think, you know, one of the Marion council races was decided by a single vote. It was, it was went to one candidate. And then after the provisional ballots were looked at, there was a one point lead for the other candidate. So it'll be interesting to see how many absentee ballots arrived at the uh, by mail at the auditor's office, you know that would have been good last year or the good la- the last election, but not this year, given those margins. If there's you know a lot of them, then that's you know, but no votes will be suppressed. They just you know didn't count as votes, which I think is the same thing. But <laughs> you know we can argue about the language. Yeah, it got pretty partisan. I mean, Amara Andrews is, is a Democrat, and and she tapped. Uh, progressive issues, progressive groups, uh, you know, hammered home the the fact that uh, Tiffany O'Donnell is a Republican. Uh, they had a, a weird uh, saga toward the end of the campaign where an entity called Iowa Voter Info sent out a mailer tying Tiffany O'Donnell to Donald Trump and Ashley Henson and Governor Reynolds. And, and then it turned out that the, that the, uh, this Iowa Voter Info 
had the same PO box as the Lynn County Democratic Central Committee, <laughs> and was using the name and email of a all, of a group that already existed, which that group was not amused, or the, or the woman that was behind that group was not happy about that. So it was very hastily put together, and I'm I'm really not sure why they felt the need to sort of do this arm's length pack uh, to basically push a message that Andrews and her campaign had already been pushing. So it was a sort of a not ready for prime time moment. Uh, she's got some financial problems that have come to light in recent weeks, which, you know, it's a story that they probably could have handled better. I think they were trying to mostly throw reporters off the scent than kind of be, you know, offer candor about what was actually happening. Uh, and of course, you know, O'Donnell uses uh, Concordia, uh, oh, I forget the name of the Concordia, the Concordia Group or whatever it is, which is the, uh, you know, Craig Robinson, Nick Ryan outfit. So she's also got some partisan folks consulting her on the other side. So, you know, we'll see. We've got uh, the rest of November to, to uh, you know, see what the message is going to be and, and how these candidates are going to conduct themselves. I think in the end, either one of them will make a good mayor and we'll be able to work with the council. I mean, there, there were some hard feelings during the campaign. We've had, you know, county supervisors getting involved in the mayor's race and then they already had a sort of a, a tenuous relationship with the city council. So uh, inject politics into it. It didn't make it any better, but I, I, I think either, like I say, I think either one of them is, you know, would be a, a competent mayor and uh, it'll soon we'll be back to, you know, streets projects and <laughs> potholes and all of the things that sort of mundane. The exciting parts things. of local government. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Elections part two. And the number one question in the wake of the elections is what results mean for Bi the Biden agenda, as well as 2022 and 2024. Virginia seemed like a slow moving train wreck for Democrats. Polls showed the race tightening and there were all sorts of rumors about internal polls showing the race not to be close at all. Um, in the end, Republican Glenn Youngkin won 50, approximately 51 to 49 percent. Republicans also won the lieutenant governor race there and attorney general race, and the House of Delegates is likely to be in GOP control, too. A Republican nearly won the governor's race in deep blue New Jersey. Um, so, yes, what does this mean for the future, Todd? Is uh, the Biden agenda doomed, or is the president one infrastructure package victory away from gaining his comeback Joe title. Yeah, maybe neither. Uh, I don't think his agenda is doomed. I think they're trying to put together a package that is acceptable. Uh, you know, I don't know how much they're, else they're going to have to jettison out of it to make Joe Manchin happy, but, uh, you know, hopefully there'll be something left uh, that, 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 you know, Democrats can tout. I mean, you know, the things like, reducing drug prices and, and family leave and and uh, a lot of this stuff are you know these pieces are popular when you pull them it, i mean folks folks like this stuff so uh you know if they can if they can break through the the republican narrative of you know that this is just big spending socialism and actually explain to people what it's going to do and if there's still stuff in it that they like then then that that probably will make a difference i think the infrastructure package also is popular so uh, you know, it, there's always this temptation to read a ton into these off-year races as sort of the harbingers of, of what's going to happen next year. And, and they may be. I mean, traditionally, as has been said a million times, 
party in the White House traditionally doesn't do very well in the midterms. So, uh, but I think if they get some stuff done, it's probably not the you know the bloodbath and and panic inducing scenario that a lot of Democrats are talking about after Tuesday. But you know I, I do think they need to you know figure out what lessons they can learn from that as far as messaging and and uh, you know how they how they package their their you know their message and and I'm, I'm sure you know that's some you know smart very 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 well paid consultants are are probably hashing that out right now I'm sure Aaron uh, I haven't seen any notices from the handful of Democrats running for the U.S. Senate here in Iowa that they're dropping out uh, based on the results uh, we saw elsewhere but should the results in Virginia and New Jersey give them pause uh, make Senator Chuck Grassley feel better about an eighth term? Yeah, I mean, at, at the very least, um, they can't make the Democrats feel better about their chances. I, I don't know if there's a necessarily a one-to-one correlation here, but it certainly doesn't help, um, you know, especially what you, when you see the, the way that uh, um, Yunkin and Republicans performed in the rural areas of Virginia there wasn't anything out of those results that made Democrats feel better about their chances against Chuck Grassley. As we often say about this, there's a lot of time before the election and things could change and who knows what the mood will be and what the national issues are a year from now, roughly. Wow. We're actually right around a year from now. It's, it's nice to be able to say that we're, we're inside. The, we're in the stretch. Right now. Left. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, so who knows what that will look like. Um, but as it sits right now, it certainly wasn't encouraging and, and, um, maybe, uh, gave Chuck Grassley an even better night's sleep. So when he got up at 4am to run, he was, uh, really ready to go this time. Rested and refreshed. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Tom, uh, despite all the attention these results are getting, do they mean anything in the Iowa legislative and congressional races? You know, I, I think, again, it's it, it's hard to say, you know, there's still a lot of time, you know, um, before the 2020 um, election cycle. Um, you know, for for Democrats, I think it's, um, you know, something to give them pause and kind of reconsider their strategy and, and, and their messaging. Um, but uh, I think, you know, Really, it's it's going to um, come down to more um, decisions based on the new um, districting maps, um, the new districts that have that have that have been drawn. Where you know the consensus seems to be that the new lines are not going to help Democrats, um, and so I, I think you know more than anything, um, you know things are going to be decided by you know who decides to retire, you know who who moves to a different district and. Um, I think those things are going to have uh, a larger bearing on how things go in this next cycle. Amy, Iowa certainly seems to be a darker shade of red than uh, even a year ago when Republicans expanded their margins in the legislature. Um, so it's hard to know what role the new maps will play. But the consensus seems to be, as Tom was suggesting, that the new lines don't help Democrats. So was Virginia a bellwether, as Senator Grassley suggested this week, or ha- has that bell already rung in Iowa? 
Well, if you talk to Republicans like uh, Ashley Hinson, who represents the first district for us, um, it's voters um, taking a look at these supply chain um, disruptions, these price increases they're seeing at the gasoline pump and at the grocery store. Um, even if they're slight, it still makes a big difference when we're still basically in um, what amounts to be a, a recession and, and an, an issue with, you know, finding that sort of ability to keep growing and, and going. So people are, are having a problem and they're, according to Hinson, blaming it on Democrats, right? So I think it's really going to come down to, A, can Democrats pass um, a lot of these big bills they're talking about, like Tom mentioned, um, B, does the redistricting throw off um, some of the campaign messaging um, that these candidates are used to, like Tom mentioned? Um, but then see, can Democrats really, I think, rally around the fact that there are a lot of people that are upset about these price increases, that are upset that they can't find the staples at grocery stores and, and retail stores um, right now when they want them like they're used to? Um, these are really they seem like really mundane ideas, but Republicans know that they're rising to the level of of getting a lot of attention. And I think Democrats need to acknowledge that. And that's one of the ways that they might be able to, A, pass these bills and B, possibly not lose as badly as they're supposed to in next year's election. And speaking of the future, yet in another in a long line of 2024 GOP wannabes came visiting this week. Former Vice President Mike Pence was at the University of Iowa to deliver the Ronald Reagan lecture. About 700 people showed up and only one had to be escorted out. To me, that was the news. Um, there were protesters outside the Memorial Memorial Union who engaged in a little mutually rough play with event organizers. If they weren't so earnest, I would have thought they were trying to be ironic with their signs proclaiming no room for hate next to I hate Mike Pence and others advocating conjugal relationships, purely in a political sense, I'm sure, with Pence and Donald Trump. Oh, and the soundtrack included Nipsey Hussle's, you guessed it, F Donald Trump. No room for hate here. What was most interesting to me about Pence's speech was what he didn't say. He talked about freedom is good, Democrats are bad, but he didn't talk much about Donald Trump. In a way, it was the same playbook Youngkin used in Virginia, praise for some of the things that Trump did, cut taxes, roll back regulations, speed up the development of COVID-19 vaccines. There was no mention of the downside of the Trump presidency. So is this the winning recipe for Republicans in 2022 and possibly 2024? Court the Trump base, but keep Trump at arm's length, accept his endorsement, but don't appear in the same TV frame or photo frame with him. Can Ashley Hinson and Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks, wherever she runs, walk that Trump tightrope, Todd? I guess, you know, Virginia and Iowa are very different in that Virginia voted, you know, for Joe Biden by about 10 points and uh, Iowa voted for Donald Trump by eight, nine, somewhere in there. So I don't, I, I don't think there is a tightrope in Iowa. I think, you know, most of the, well, let's just say all of the top Republican leaders in the state have, have basically held close to, to Trump and his policies and his, you know, once in a while they would sort of mildly condemn something outrageous, but they've stuck with him uh, they've embraced, you know, him through these election cycles where they've done very well. Uh, I would, I would say that in Iowa, that I mean, Henson and Miller Meeks will will basically pay no penalty for 
for for embracing the former president and his policies. And uh, I mean, that's that's just the way it looks here. I don't I don't think they have to hold anyone at arm's length because they I mean, he's he's already joined with them at the hip. So you can't hold them in arm's length that way. You know, he's, it's physiologically impossible, frankly. So that's. <laughs> Amy. <laughs> I don't know. I, I would say that I think, you know, when you've put Hinton's feet to the fire and, and said, do you agree with Donald Trump or do you tie this to, to Donald Trump? She's really very cautious. And I think that might just be a function of the swinginess of the first district. Um, it, and you're right that, you know, some of them don't have to be as cautious. Obviously, Feenstrick can go all in on Trump if he wanted to. Not that he necessarily has, but he also not necessarily hasn't. But I think Hinson's tried a little bit more to walk that line. And I don't know if redistricting um, helps or hurts that, allows her to um, not have to worry about that as much anymore. Um, but she, I, I feel like she really has tried to walk the line. But maybe that's just me. What uh, I think the challenge to me for some of these folks is that while they tend to talk about, and I've heard, for example, Representative Hinson talk about this, that some of the policies of the Trump administration were good and were helpful and, uh, you know, good for the first district, but sort of at the same time, not embracing Donald Trump's behavior. Yeah. And yet when you talk to the folks in the Trump base, actually, that was kind of one of the things they liked about Trump is he was abrasive. He was you know, he said what he thought. He he told people off. All those things. Right. So you know, they maybe they have to keep him at half arm's length. I don't know. She can get all the Republicans by being with Trump. Um, but but if you're in that swing district, if you're in that first swing district, and you are trying to get those independents, which obviously in Iowa is a huge percentage, um, and you kind of do need them to maybe win in the first it might be helpful to walk the line. I, I agree that yeah, Republicans are all in for Trump and have been. Right. Well, I, I, I think, you know, actually one of the, one of the challenges that Henson will face is that Trump isn't on the ballot. So, I mean, those, those folks that, that are excited to vote for Donald Trump in 2020, how many of those people will show up when, when Trump's not on the ballot? Cause Trump may be all they care about as far as, you know, electoral politics. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, that's, that's going to be, she, she may have to, I mean, the tightrope may be that she has to emphasize more that she's on the former president's side to get those folks enthused to vote for her. Yep. That, that's exactly what I was just going to jump in and say that that's, that's, that's the challenge facing all Republicans. Um, but especially in those competitive races, like um, Hinson almost assuredly will have is that, um, you know, they, they've had some good success in, the, in some recent cycles, largely because of Donald Trump. He's had coattails here in Iowa and the, the question is whether that continues when, when he's not on the ballot and isn't necessarily committed. He may run again. He may not. Um, so, so I agree with hundred percent with Todd there. And, and that may be why those Republicans, Ashley Hansen, Marionette Miller Meeks, um, and any others may have to lean into that a little more than you might normally expect. Cause they, I, I guess it's the question that the, the, the calculus they'll have to do is how many of, that Trump base, do you try to motivate to get off and do you risk alienating those swing voters that, that, uh, those independent voters that, um, that Amy talked about, um, in Iowa, maybe based on what we've seen, maybe you're a little safer to, to lean into the, to, to the Trump base, but we'll, we'll find out over the coming months. Well, it seemed in Virginia, what worked was Youngkin not appearing with Trump 
um, and not really talking about him too much. Um, but Trump calling in, doing these teletown hall rallies with uh, voters and things like that and endorsing Youngkin. So it'll be interesting to me to see if that happens here in Iowa, where he's not doing events with the candidates, but events with the voters, keep them engaged and fired up and on the same page. And as Aaron mentioned, we've got less than a year to see how this plays out. And we'll talk about it on future editions of On Iowa Politics. If you enjoy the podcast, tell a friend and subscribe to us wherever you find your podcasts. Send fan mail to podcasts at thegazette.com. And you can find us on the home pages of the Quad City Times, Sioux City Journal, Muscatine Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Milk and Eggs will take us out. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be on our show, send us a sound file and subscribe to On Iowa Politics. For Aaron, Amy, Todd, Tom, and our producer, Stephen, I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening. Be well. Of it, 